Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 64 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Jackson Takish is the Chief Economist and Head of Strategy, Research, and Analytics at Farmer Mac. Today, we're talking with Jackson about the current market for land real estate, as well as technology advancements in land. Are you curious about interest rates or the conflicts in Ukraine and Israel and their impact on farmland, ranch land, and recreational or hunting land? Want to know what the future holds for technology and land evaluation and agricultural efficiency? If so, this episode is exactly what you're looking for. Now, sit back and enjoy. Right. So I am sitting here with Jackson Takish from Farmer Mac. Jackson, how are you doing today? I'm great, Mac. Thanks for having me back on the program. Yeah, you know, it was with 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 the things that we discussed on the first episode, I, I absolutely loved it. And your level of knowledge of just the, the general economics of land uh, is is extremely valuable. So I wanted to be able to uh, to get you on here on a regular uh, to to get to get the word out there because because like I said, for anybody that's interested in land, um, I thought that presented a lot of value. So uh, briefly, you know, I, I know we did this last time. Brief bio, you can run it abbreviated if you want to. Um, just sort of your background, what you do with Farmer Mac. You bet. And, and uh, appreciate the the callback here. I love to get on and talk all things economics, land, agriculture, rural economics. Right. So this is kind of a, a passion of mine. I grew up small town in Kentucky, kind of have that rural uh, background and, you know, agriculture, rural economics, went to school for economics, found my way to Farmer Mac almost 20 years ago, if you can believe that. Uh, I've been working there ever since and, and have loved every minute of it. Farmer Mac's an incredible company. We do, uh, you know, agricultural mortgage, the secondary market for ag mortgages across the country, all 50 states. We also have the pleasure of serving rural infrastructure markets. So things like rural cooperatives who, who provide electricity to millions of Americans, broadband, renewable power, all these things. So we have a, a wide network of lenders who work with us, provide those uh, capital transactions to, you know, hundreds of thousands of residents all across the country. And I couldn't be happier to work here and cover the things that I do as chief economist. You know, got to keep an eye on lots of things, see how they're going to impact business strategy, how they're going to impact borrowers, lenders, uh, and, and market trend transactions in general. And couldn't be happier to spend a little time with you today. I was going to say, so you, your job is essentially to keep track of all the things that we talk about on the news, right? That's right. And, and really to, to not just track it, but figure out, okay, well, what does that mean for someone buying land, who's owning land, who's borrowing against land, who might be putting in power lines, who might be putting in broadband lines, how it all mixes together to affect the capital transactions that flow behind those decisions. Uh, so it's a, it's a complex you know, ecosystem, lots of uh, things coming and going. And uh, it's a lot of fun to try to keep track of all. We've got a great team, you know, uh, at Farmer Mac and the Strategy Research Group who work on all sorts of 
really fun, cutting edge, uh, informational, um, stuff. <laughs> so briefly describe to and I know I pinned you down on this one on the last episode too, but I, I want to take into account that maybe people haven't listened to the, that episode, uh, describe just what farmer Mac does, what the secondary marketplace exactly is like their function within that area. Yeah, you bet. I mean, we're, we're not a company that you can walk in the office and just say, Hey, I need a loan. I want to buy a new farm or I want to put up some poles. I'm a you know, electric cooperative. I want to put up some poles. We're not a company that has any retail presence. When we say secondary, that's what we mean. We're not transacting directly with the borrowers. Rather, we work with a network of, you know, a thousand different uh, uh, lending institutions out there. And what we do is provide them with products and uh, uh, loan products, capital products, and uh, essentially, you know, liquidity so that they can make the loans and then they can have a place to sell those loans so they can make another loan. Right. So we want these banks to feel like they're active in the marketplace. They have capacity to lend. They have capacity to keep businesses well capitalized, keep that credit flowing. And the secondary market, like Farmer Mac, what we'll do is buy those loans so that those primary lenders can keep on lending. Uh, we also have great access to capital. We manage it well, and that provides a great, you know, investment stream for a lot of people too. So we, you know, we're both on the end of lending, right? So we try to help lending institutions have more liquidity and have more options for their borrowers. We also have a group of investors who love our story and they look for, you know, bonds that they might want to invest in or stocks that they want to invest in that Farmer Mac uh, provides a great return on for, for them. So we do a, we do a whole lot uh, as that secondary market participant. But really, what I think about it is uh, we're trying to create liquidity in the marketplace to lower the costs and make uh, uh, lending more accessible to rural Americans everywhere. That seemed like almost a textbook description of of what form. Of, I think you've said that before, probably, huh? Yeah, I feel it feels like one of those elevator moments, you know, where you're like, <laughs> all right. So if I have two minutes, this is what I want to say about uh, this great institution. Perfect. So, so given your, your knowledge base and given what former Mac does, uh, let's jump in, let's talk about, and, and I'm sure the, the, the key thing, you know, whenever, whenever you get the, the podium, right. People probably want to ask you, what is the state of things? Where are we? It's been a few months since you and I have talked on here. Um, you know, where are things sitting now from say three months ago when we talked last time? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, lots changed and nothing's changed, right? I mean, you can say you know, say you can say both things. I think three months ago we were kind of saying, hey, I, I think the ag economy might head for a little bit of a slowdown. We've got revenues coming down a little bit, commodity prices are cooling. That's probably going to cool down revenue, and that might compress farm profitability. So we're three months from that sort of initial call. That feels like we're pretty much on track. You look at the commodity markets. They're lower than what we expected, or uh, they're, they're in line with what we expected probably three months ago, lower than they lower were a year expected. ago. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're kind of like on track, I think, from where we were three months ago, just thinking about the ag economy in general, the farm profitability in, in general. Similarly, if you look at the interest rate environment, it's elevated, and we expected it to be elevated and remain elevated with a couple more maybe nuances, uh, different points along the yield curve have gone up or down uh, and, you know, kind of a little bit more volatility, probably gone up and down since we last talked. But in that sense, a lot of uh, consistency across the markets and expectations in those markets. What I think maybe has changed is uh, uh, some of the outlook for 24. When you think about the macro economy, what the Fed has to you know, work with the data that they're looking at uh, and what might impact sort of that next call for interest rate environment. If you think about monetary policy, what might affect that? And then also sort of this fiscal policy uh, where we 
went through, you know, uh, government shutdown averted, you know, narrowly at the last minute, but we've got another, you know, deadline looming and there's quite a bit of political, you know, I think uh, uh, stress as well as some activities globally, you know, that might disrupt sort of the world economy in the next 12 months. So there's always something going on, but I think in terms of the ag and interest rate markets, it's been a little bit more steady the last uh, couple of months and expectations have really sort of met reality. Do you think that that has to do with, uh, with more just, you know, we had a fairly drastic change in, uh, in, you know, we're going to say like a year and a half, a year, uh, with the interest rate, you know, increases that we saw, do you think it's a matter of people are adjusting to the initial shock and things are kind of starting to hit, you know, I'm, I don't, I, I can't use the word new normal and feel good <laughs> about myself. Um, I'm going to say they've adjusted to change. And, it, and things are leveling out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, the the, the new normal, right? It's kind of like, um, what did we say right at the beginning of the pandemic? You know, unprecedented. It was the level of unprecedentedness <laughs> was unprecedented. Um, but yes, yeah, so I totally agree. I think there is some level of acceptance uh, of the environment that we're in. I think it's first like, you know, uh, denial. Right? It's the stages of grief almost when you say, oh, the, these interest rates will come back down. I'll just wait it out. Right. And then you kind of get to a spot where you have to start making some decisions. You can't postpone capital deployment or you can't postpone uh, opportunities forever. You might need to sell or buy something. Right. You think all these homeowners out here are just kind of sitting on their properties. Well, that can't last forever. Sometimes you're going to need a new job or you're going to move for a life, a life change. And that's going to start to affect what's on the market in terms of real estate or the decisions you have to make to refinance or sell or buy, whatever it is. So I think there's some level of acceptance that the marketplace is starting to, to come to grips with. I think people have put off as much as they could in terms of uh, selling properties or buying properties. But uh, we're kind of hitting the point where you know Q4 tends to be a bit more uh, frothy when it comes to transactions, you tend to see activity pick up. And I think that's likely to happen compared to where we've been the last couple of quarters, where it's just been absolutely just the flow of transactions has stopped. Uh, and if that's true, if you're in the real, you know, residential world, or if you're in uh, land markets, like farmland markets, where there's just nothing trading, there's no, there's nothing on the market. Um, and that's helped support prices. And then hopefully we're going to see a little bit more activity, a little more you know, movement in some of those markets. I'm sure your listeners are probably like, yes, please. Um, because it's just hard to find anything. If you want to buy a property, it's very, it's a, it's a seller's market right now with the number of buyers and sellers. Yeah. And, and so in kind of retreading the way through that, our, our CEO, Ronnie Richardson is always saying that he there's a quote that he always says, the best time to sell land is when you don't have to, yeah. because then you have the time to sit on it, analyze and sort of what you're speaking to is is sort of what we see is there are people that that have kind of sat on the sideline, but then you get to a situation in life where you have to sell. And and you know, in residential, it's you know, like you said, you get a new job somewhere else. And then when you're talking about agricultural, you know, land use, you have people retiring, you have people that move out of the sector. You have maybe maybe they're pulling a 1031 and they're just putting their money elsewhere and parking it in like a you know commercial. Well, I, I don't know about commercial right now, but let, let's say something else that's income producing. Um, but there's there's movement that has to happen. And then so then you'll start to see some of these listings kick into the market. Um, do you see and, and this is very perspective, right? Like I'm, you know, don't, don't put yourself anywhere where you don't have to, but it, do you see the market heading towards a higher inventory count 
in the coming year with, with sort of that influx, or do you think it's going to sort of hold steady? We, a lot will depend on the buyers, right? So I, I think it will be hard to go lower in terms of supply. I think the supply is very constrained. You look at um, a tools like, you know, acre value where they kind of track levels uh, of inventory transactions, right? And we're kind of sitting on multi-year lows of the number of uh, sales that have been captured, you know, by the, by these, you know, uh, um, tr- you know, transaction management companies and the data trackers, uh, we're seeing like near historic lows. So it's hard to see it going down, which means there's probably going to be more activity uh, coming on market in the next, you know, three, six, 12 months. So it's all about, do people, does it, does those, does that supply find demand? And I think that demands, there's still a lot of really positive elements out there. So you have cash coming o- over from 21, 22, where a lot of producers uh, had record or near record profitability. So a lot of cash coming into the system combined with government payments from 20 and 21 balance sheets are pretty healthy. And so I think the demand, there's, you know, some, some tailwinds for uh, demand at the the farm level uh, to, to, to pick up and, and purchase some of that supply. So uh, that's, I think the tailwinds, the headwinds are going to be, Hey, uh, 23 is certainly going to be tighter profitability. Interest rates are higher. So what happens with, um, leverage on some of those properties. It, it, how do they cash flow? What is the capital uh, calculation look like for a lot of these buyers? Uh, so those could be some of the headwinds. So you know, people are doing the math on it, going like, "Well, I'm not going to pay what I used to pay at three percent for an eight percent loan, right?" So I think there's going to have to be um, some additional math done, right, on the demand side. I think there's there's enough, you know, spare powder out there. So dry powder that people have been sitting on the last couple of years. I think there's enough out there to keep that demand high enough to support a sizable increase in supply. Excellent. And and yeah, you're talking about where the, the prices of land, the prices of real estate have to have to move to accommodate the increase caused by interest rates right now, where, where we're looking at higher interest rates, they got to come down a little bit to meet that. And it's like, it's hard to adjust that expectation. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you have fifty thousand dollars that you could spend in interest and principal, and you had a, an interest rate go up, well, that just means the balance of loan that you can afford has to go down to 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 equal. So, will producers spend a little bit more and cover at the same price that they used to, or will they put more cash down? Right. So that we're seeing that as well in the secondary. Maybe the loan to values, the the amount that you're borrowing against the value of the property, we've seen those come down. So people are spending the same amount in P&I payments and interest rates gone up, but they're just borrowing less because they had the, the extra cash to do that. Right, right. So as far as is just general kind of nationwide land economics, uh, have you jumped in much to the drought that we're seeing in some parts of the Midwest throughout the, the tail end of this year? What do you see as far as or, or have you seen, have you dove into this as far as the economic impact of that? Well, you know, I think this is one of the things you got to see it through, right? Because we, we did see this, a similar thing last year. We got this brutal uh, draining of the Mississippi and you're trying to, you know, ship grain down the Mississippi, but now it's crowded because you can't run as big of barges. There's fewer of them that can fit um, and setting stuff back up is very difficult as well. So that's going to affect your fertilizer prices and all the stuff you need to ship back up river um, to get, you know, sort of inputs back up to the Northern parts, Northern States. So, uh, I think we'll have to see how that plays out. I mean, it's definitely impacting right now the basis that, you know, if you have to sit on 
corn for longer, soybeans for longer before you can ship it, that's going to affect carrying costs. That's going to drive down cash prices. So I think that is a um, immediate hit, right, to the profitability on farm. You're thinking, hey, I, I could sell my my beans for 14 bucks at the, at the elevator. Well, now maybe it's 12, right? It's, you know, it's starting to see that compression and what you're able to, to carry at the, at the, at the elevators. Uh, one year thing, I think it doesn't really impact the economics too hard, but now we're in the second year. It's happened two years in a row. So you're going to have to start to do that math on what can I expect at the end of each year when I hit harvest? Is that something I now need to build into the cost function of moving grain up and down those, you know, transactions costs up and down the river. I think fortunately we've seen a pickup in rail cars. So the cost of rail has helped offset a little bit of the cost of uh, the river shipping. Um, but it's, it's big, it's a big deal. And if it keeps happening year after year, it becomes a function. It gets built in and capitalized into the value of the asset. I don't think we're there yet. I think you need to, maybe it's still viewed as a sort of a, not a black swan, but maybe like a light gray swan. Um, not guaranteed to happen, but it's happened two years in a row now. And that makes people start to think like, hey, this is not just a once in a hundred year event anymore. Now it's almost like, is this a once in a 10 year, once in a five year? How, how frequent is this going to happen to me? Yeah. And you, you bring up a really great point that I think a lot of people don't necessarily take into account when they live, you know, let's, let's say East coast, West coast, just outside of that Midwest corridor how important the Mississippi is for transportation of goods and something as something that seems like your immediate interpretation of a drought is, Oh, it's harder to grow things. Okay. Like that, that is a thing, but you're also talking about the cost of inputs because of now the new challenge of just transporting where you have to look at alternative means of transport, or you're looking at constrained supply because smaller barges have to be used. And, and that drives up the cost of inputs, which now you're carrying higher overhead. You're carrying, you got a lower margin on your product because you have higher cost of inputs. Like there's, there's this chain effect that I don't think gets accounted for when it comes to discussing things like, a, you know, a dr I want to say a simple drought, but a drought is not simple. But when you're talking about a drought, there, there is a chain of events that, that really do kind of impact the whole when you're talking to agriculture. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think of the Mississippi as one of our superpowers uh, in global food production. Uh, it's our ability to move stuff to the coasts from the middle where we have a great deal of uh, agricultural produ productivity and efficiencies. Not every country that we compete with in the global stage has, has a Mississippi. No one does. Um, so when you start to gum it up, that's going to create a lot of, of stress on our system, increases the cost of production, and makes Brazil look that much more attractive as a trading partner now. Uh, maybe the, if we had a cost differential of a couple of pennies, well, now maybe it's even or even flipped the other way because Brazil's relied more on trucking and they've you know maybe perfected some of those uh, trucking routes. We, if we have a drought, all of a sudden now shipping over to overseas partners becomes in question and it's, it's more costly. Do you see additional strain to and we'll just we'll we'll let's put it down to to commodities right where um do you see any impact from what's going on in israel right now because we already had impact that we were looking at from ukraine mm -hmm. do we see additional strain to markets based on that israel's not as much of a player, you know, in, in terms of what Ukraine produces in with commodities, but is there impact that we're going to see with this? And this is brand new, right? Like this is, yeah. this is fresh on our, on our, you know, radar. 
Uh, do we anticipate any impact from that? Well, yeah, it's hard to say from supply and demand. You know, it's a put the humanitarian pieces of this kind of uh, over here because it's tragic. Anytime you've got a loss of life in, in these kind of scales and people are fighting, it's just the worst. Uh, if I think about production supply, I don't think we should see that much disruption. But what will happen uh, when you do have sort of geopolitical stress, uh, as we've seen, you know, we saw this with uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia, see it now, um, Israel, Palestine. Um, you've got, I think, a lot of global stress, you know, geopolitical stress, and that, and that causes weird things to happen in the market. So maybe a flight to quality, maybe we see. Uh, uh, the dollar index getting stronger. That's one evidence. We see that that can impact the um, commodity price markets because everything's priced in dollars. So if the dollar gets stronger, it puts downward pressure on commodity prices. So there could, I think it's probably more second order effects. We're not going to see a direct impact um, because of the conflict to supply and demand for goods, but it is going to certainly create um, some market movements that could impact agriculture uh, almost immediately. So you see it, uh, interest rates actually have come down a little bit as the, you know, maybe people have put some more money into treasuries looking for, Hey, if this is going to kick off a recession or a global economic, uh, uh, problem, well, I want to put it in safe assets. So you see maybe a little bit more flight to quality that increases the dollar again, and then you've got downward pressure on commodity price. So there's a little bit of, uh, I think second order effects, because of a global situation uh, like this or an event like this, rather than just primary with Ukraine, Russia, when Russia moved into Ukraine, I think wheat prices tripled because they make a lot of wheat and they feed a lot of people. And all of a sudden now people weren't sure where that wheat was going to go. It was going to get destroyed. So there was more immediate impacts to supply and demand there uh, with, with the conflict in Israel. I think that's probably likely to play out a little bit more indirectly. Great. And I really do appreciate you compartmentalizing there for a thought experiment because there, there is no way to shift around uh, the, the, the overall psychological impact of war and the tragic events that are going on. So I, I, I do, I appreciate you handling it like that uh, because it's, it's one of those like, can, can I compartmentalize like that? Can I really, okay. Let's, <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so another conversation that you and I kind of started jumping into was sort of the impacts of technology on, on just overall markets, just the, you know, agriculture, real estate markets. Um, I wanted to sort of get your take on technology impact where technology is progressing and, and sort of, you know, how do you take this into account from your perspective, you know, chief economist at Farmer Mac, what, what are you looking at as far as technology impact? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of directions we could go. I, I think about it from, you know, the farmer, right? If I think about, okay, the, the person who's borrowing money and, and putting capital to work, well, I love technology as an efficiency player as uh, how can you get better? How can you do more with less? Automate, use information and intelligence to make smarter, faster, better decisions for your operation. And I think there's a lot of that happening. So precision agriculture, we've been kind of talking about that for a decade. Uh, there's still a great innovation and technology happening sort of on the farm for things like, um, you know, in the lab, better seeds, better uh, nutrient management, but also in the fields like, you know, uh, laser targeting of weeds, right? Things that should help reduce the application of input. So you buy less and be a little bit more green uh, in terms of your energy usage and all those kind of things. So there's a lot of really exciting things in precision. Uh, I think about big data. So that's another, you know, I think five or six years ago, every conference I went to was 
big data and agriculture, right? It was this huge promise of the revolution that was going to happen from big data and agriculture. I don't think we've gotten every, you know, promise has been delivered on uh, for, for that. But I do think there's a lot of excitement and interest and uh, opportunity around like what the, what the field, what the machinery, what the farmer generates in terms of data and how do you process it and use it for, you know, the betterment of food production in the world. Um, and then I think about, you know, land, right. We just see so many interesting ways to apply what we learn from the production, what we learn from satellite imagery and, uh, you know, sort of that big data pile of big data, there's really exciting ways to apply that to land valuation techniques. So I mentioned acre value before it's a company we work with, uh, putting out, you know, models that say, Hey, this property here is worth this based on its characteristics property across town or across County has a little bit different characteristics. So it's intrinsic value is higher or lower. And how is that trending? So really exciting, um, intelligence that the lending community can tap into that farmers can tap into investors can tap into to understand what's going on in the marketplace. And there are others out there too. I won't just mention, you know, the ones that we work with, there's, you know, acres and uh, Aquoso and Agcor. And, um, um, there's just a, you know, a really healthy mix of, companies and, and, and innovators out there trying to find ways to put this data to work. Uh, Camo Ag is another one. Um, so there's just a, a really interesting set of people who say, hey, I've got this data. Farmers can't be expected to process it all. They're not going to have the database technology. They're not going to understand GIS systems. And so they're really trying very, uh, very diligently to make that information make sense, make it you know, actionable and intelligent for users. And I think that's a really exciting place to be uh, as an economist, as well as somebody who works in the lending space. Every tool we get is going to make us better, smarter, and help put that capital to work more efficiently. You know, I'm actually really, really happy to hear that that you on on the, the agricultural and, and economic side of things got bludgeoned with big data terminology over the last five years, because marketing, that's all it's been. <laughs> So I'm I'm really I'm really happy to hear there were other people impacted by the introduction of this and and uh, that went through all the the information and analysis of it. You mentioned a couple of things there that I I want to dive into a little more and 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 you know if it's not if it's not part of your lexicon you know steer me elsewhere. But you mentioned laser laser targeting of weeds. It's Tell wild. me about that. I so this is this is new to me, and I'm sure there's several farmers on here that that already know or aware. Uh, but tell me a little bit about this technology. Well, I, I can't even mention a name. This is you know these are the kind of things you pick up when you go to conferences, right? You kind of follow yeah. the threads of uh, in, innovation on the farm, particularly around how do we do more with less, right? How do we grow the same amount of food but don't put as many uh, nutrients, or do we need fewer pest management? To, to any, anything we can not spray saves money and saves the shipping of that chemical. Like there's just a whole like supply chain and energy chain around that. So uh, I've seen a couple of, you know, videos on this technology and it's really impressive using, um, you know, cameras to identify the difference between the plant that we're protecting and the plant that's attacking it and being able to micro target the plants based off of visual data coming off of that camera. So it's kind of, it's, machine learning, it's AI, it's, you know, all the buzzy things kind of in one uh, uh, technology that the goal is to do more with less, right? And, and save, save the field, save the plants you want to protect, but not have to spray them with chemicals. Instead, you can do 
uh, um, less ele- electricity, less, you know, housing of chemicals, less production of all that stuff. You save it. And, uh, and it's cool. It's like very futuristic and, you know, it feels like I'm watching the Terminator or something like that. I was just, it's, it's, I was zaps. I was about to make a joke about Skynet. <laughs> we're identifying stuff with cameras and robots are shooting lasers at it to eliminate it. That is, that's, that's I don't think we're quite that, you know, I wouldn't uh, I mean, but, yeah, yeah, exactly like that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's feels the sci-fi future. geek in me just like did a cartwheel. Um, so, <laughs> and, and I mean, we already have the technology, right? You can download, there's, there's anywhere up to 15 apps where you can download something to your cell phone, take a photo of a plant and this app will tell you what it is whether it's, and you can, you can differentiate the leaf, the flower or the bark to identify different species. And so you're just talking about applying an eradication system to that using heat, which, you know, laser is heat and you just fry it. That I was not aware that technology exists. This, the conversation has been worth it already, man. I, (laughs) I'm going to do some deep dives. Uh, yeah, I, I hope oh. people do Google it. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. I wish I could remember the name of the companies. I'd love to give them a plug. I think it's really interesting and innovative, the kinds of products they're working on. But I mean, everywhere from uh, can we um, take humans out of an equation that's unsafe? So picking fruit at the top of a tree, right? We, we hack all these trees down because we don't want people up there to try to pick fruit. Well, now if I can pick fruit from the top, I don't have to hack a tree off, I can let the tree do its thing and I can pick fruit from, you know, using robotics or, you know, automated processes. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's been going on in ag for 25, 30 years. How do I do more with less, de-risk it, uh, uh, increase the revenue, decrease the costs. And we're getting to a point where some really exciting, you know, technologies, you've got the compute power now, you've got the data and you've got machinery that's getting better and better at identifying the problem you want to identify. And that's a great combination of, innovation happening simultaneously. I uh, hesitate to even bring AI up because that's been another one of those. Like, if big data was overkill five it's years ago, big today, data. It's AI. <laughs> um, but I love, you know, when I think one of the problems with big data is it's just like so much, right? I mean, I, you know, your field generates a ton of data, your phone generates a ton of data, satellites generate a ton of data. It's a lot to try to bring together put into actionable intelligence and do something with it. It could take months just to do that. Well, what I love about AI and generative, you know, uh, um, large language models, it, it can take a lot of that intelligence and make it make sense. It can communicate all that information with a lay person like me, who's not going to, I'm um, not going to be able to take all that, assimilate it, understand it and make decisions off of it. Well, now I have maybe an AI tool that can do that and it can communicate with me directly make suggestions. I still have to make the decision, but it's got more compute power than I do brain power. It's not as smart as me, but it can, it can comprehend and see connections that I can't see. And it can do it way faster than me as a, as a human. Uh, So I like it for this. I think there's a, there's a place for AI with big data in agriculture to help us all do things uh, better, faster, and cheaper. I was going to say it, it, one of the analogies that I used to describe sort of the, the combo of big data and, and, you know, AI was you've got the library, big data is the library and it's a huge library. And, and you've accumulated all this information, all these topics, all these books on different things. But the one thing we didn't have before is a really good librarian. Yeah. And 
someone who can recommend the right book, someone who knows the topics, where you can find certain things, how to, maybe if you're interested in this, you might be interested in that. And it, I mean, it's really, I, I would almost say like having five great, really librarians all sitting in front of you at the same time. To uh, a, I think it's an awesome analogy. I think that I, is exactly right. It was, it was between me and my 10 year old. So I really, I wanted it to be really profound, but he sort of blinked at me a couple of times and went on to Lego. So, you know, it, different people react to it differently. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you brought up efficiency and it's, I mean, you brought it several times talked about increasing efficiency and it's been over like the last 30 years, we've seen a lot of increases. Do you have sort of an analytic measure of what we have seen industry wide? And it's going to be different for every industry, but just is, is there sort of a measure that you use when you're looking at increased efficiency? How, how much has the increases been over the last 20 years? And I don't want to make you come up with a hard number or pull it out of your head, but I mean, in general, what have we seen as far as increases in efficiency, whether it be with inputs or output, right? With, mm -hmm. with agriculture over the last 20 years. Yeah. I, I don't have a hard number, so you're not going to get one out of me. Which All is right. I, I'm not one of those economists who'll just uh, talk around the problem and like, you know, not, not deliver. I will just tell you, I don't know, but I will say there's some really great data from USDA uh, that I've seen, read and studied. I just don't know the numbers off the top of my head. Uh, and the, what economists try to think about when you think about efficiency and productivity is uh, there's a measure called total factor productivity. So TFP, it's, it looks at for what you put in, in units of labor and units of capital, what do you get out? And are you seeing a greater increase in output relative to how much stuff you have to put into it? So if you, you know, rewind the clock 50 years, you needed 10 people and 10 tractors to generate, you know, I don't know, 10,000 bushels of corn. Well, today you can do that with two people and one tractor, right? And so it's going to measure that relative level of inputs to outputs. Uh, and it has been very stark, the, the sort of increase in total factor productivity that U.S. farmers have produced, and, and it, we've sold it to the world, right? So we've taken our technology, given it to Brazilians, given it to Ukrainians, given it to, you know, Indian farmers, right? So we're actually exporting some of that productivity and making the world better at food production, which has just been, uh, you know, that we don't we don't spend that much on food here. Uh, we're so fortunate that our cost of food relative to our incomes is so low. Not true everywhere, but it's really allowed us to enjoy more leisure, more investment in other things, uh, greater stability. I mean, th that's what that total factor productivity has allowed us to do. And it's just been still, you can look at the curve. I mean, it is like sharply increasing from left to right as we've increased technology uh, and ingenuity on the farm. Do you think that we're hitting a place of maximum efficiency or are we just starting? I'll say we're probably in the middle. I do think it slowed down. You know, you kind of, a lot of the growth was in better seed technology, hybrids, um, you know, genetics just getting better. So that increased very rapidly. We also saw more track, just, just generally, we had more, more widely available technology. Tractors got better, combines got better. So there is a, a natural limit that some of those things will hit. You start to see that curve uh, start to drop off, but this is where, hey, maybe uh, using data to enhance where we plant, when we plant, um, looking at different parts of the country, uh, activating different crops in different parts of the country. There's still a lot, I think, that can be done to enhance total productivity uh, in food production. And that's even, that's on fewer and fewer acres as we see some come out for development and you know urbanizing pressures. Uh, different climate change 
Um, you know, there's floodplains that are changing. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that are happening to reduce how much land we have, which means we just have to get better and better at producing on it. Yeah. And I, I, and I wanted to point to that just, you know, we've, we've seen it in microchips, right? Where microchips have reduced to a certain size and now you can't go any smaller because electrical signals jump across on the nano level to, to other circuits. Mm-hmm. Efficiency has peaked as far as size. And then now it has to get bigger to accommodate more power. And so agriculture, I just, yeah, I was curious if, if it had reached this sort of law of diminishing returns on efficiency. Well, I guess it's not diminishing returns, but the maximum efficiency. Um, yeah. That, that's that, so, so, sort of the 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 way forward if i'm hearing this right is utilizing data sets on on almost a i want to say kind of a a micro level where it's this region this thing try this this condition this ph and then applying that as a whole and you can apply that to other areas that are similar and use that data set right Absolutely. Absolutely. There's going to be a lot of optimizing that happens um, to land in the next thousand years. Um, and we get the most use out of the best properties. Right? I think that's really the goal. If you were just to be, if you own the entirety of the U S right, you would do things very differently than if it was made up by, you know, 2 million farmers. Uh, and I think those 2 million farmers will collectively work together to optimize for each one of them. And you kind of end up with that holistic picture of optimized food production. So that, that ha- it takes time, it takes longer when there's 2 million decision makers versus one, uh, but that's how you get the markets, right? So I think having those 2 million, it may be less efficient, it may take more time to optimize everything as they're making those decisions, but it will over time work towards that single entity optimization picture. Uh, and I'm not saying the you know, seed companies are still doing great work, I think there's, you know, John Deere is doing incredible things with combining, you know, data and tech in the, you know, uh, you know, the iron itself, what the machines can do. Automation is going to help with the human elements. So we don't have to put humans in tough spots with hard jobs. Right. You can spend more time like riding in the cabin and not, you know, maybe out like shoveling stuff. Right. So I think there's still a lot of uh, technology that's going to happen in traditional channels, but a lot of the easy lifting has been done. And so now we're trying to, we're really leveraging multiple technologies to get that same lift in, in total productivity. Yeah. So it almost seems we're on the horizon of actually really utilizing data to become more efficient. And, and, you know, we've already done it in technology now it's hitting agriculture on a pretty high level. We're, we're probably looking at a few innovations that are, that are going to really change things here in you know the next decade then. Yeah, I think so. And, and the better, compute gets, the more connected it gets with decision-making, uh, that that's a catalyst for use. I think what we've missed so far, when I th- when I say the promise of big data hasn't really been realized, I think it's because it's difficult to translate to the individual operator or business owner. It's a, very, it's a hard sell. There's a lot of learning curves that have to happen. Well, if we can make that intelligence easier, faster to adopt, uh, uh, more trusted, right? all these things, I think you're going to see an in- improvements in uh, efficiencies and optimizing, you know, operations over the next five, 10 years, really promising stuff, I think. Yeah, I, I think so too. Cause it's, it, that's always been the hang up with agriculture and why it's lagged behind us a little bit, because y- you can, you can run an ROI on different companies based on their products. And you have a good sense of what, you know, their production outfit can do and how much labor that takes and what you're going to return on that. But agriculture can be different just across the street where you have, you know, like, yeah, there's, 
it's the same crop and it's just across the street, but one has a 25% incline in the hill and that takes this much more gas to get up the hill. And like, there's all these subtle variances that go into that, that, that you can't go through and analyze as readily from a technology standpoint, unless you have iterative AI or, or, you know, some kind of, some kind of machine learning that can take those numbers and, and compute those that that points to some some definite technological advancements over here you know that they're coming up at us I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I mentioned all the companies that are you know, taking that land data and surfacing it and making it available. And I mean, they're doing phenomenal work and you look at all the layers and acre value you can take a look at. So, you know, it could be slope, it could be uh, soil surveys. I mean, all the stuff it's all, it's always been there. We've had it for years but now it's stacked together. Now there's analysis put on top of it. Now there's comps, you know, uh, tools put into place. And so the more that we layer this together, the easier it becomes as a um, business owner or producer or economist, or whoever's looking at this stuff to say, this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. And I want to buy, sell or trade what's going on in, in that uh, ecosystem. It's, just really excited. It's, it's exciting to see the big data put to work um, because I think that's been, we've got big data. We absolutely do, but it ain't been working for us. And now we're starting to see it maybe come to work. So I, I want to hit you with an opinion question uh, with, with what we're talking about with things changing technology, influencing agriculture, technology, influencing commodities, commodities have always been as an index kind of volatile, right? Like commodities are, are, they shift with the wind as far as when you look at futures indexes, something like weather, something like a, an international conflict, something just shipping, right? We just talked about that. Do you think that these increased efficiencies will increase or decrease volatility in commodities? Yeah. I mean, that's, there's a lot that can go into that, you know, that answer. I mean, how much time we got? We got another 45 hey, minutes. You want to throw another hour started. down with me? <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's always going to be volatility. I mean, cause he as good as you can get, you can pencil all this stuff out. You can be like, well, on paper, this acre should, if you perfectly plant it and get exactly the number of growing degree days in it, you should be able to get 235 bushels out of it every year that's a very difficult thing to, pre to predict because the sun could shine one day and then it could not shine for 10 days. And all of a sudden your predictions are out the window. So I, I do think there are so many variables. Volatility is not likely to, um, to decrease uh, anytime soon. And a lot of them are outside the control of the operator. So it's not like, Oh, I made a bad call on my marketing plan or you know, I did something that, um, that could be explainable. And it was, it was something I did as a business owner operator, a lot of it's going to be, hey, this uh, the Mississippi's closed, so that's going to completely change what my marketing plan is and should have been and could have been. Um, I think it, what what it will likely do is gr put, put put greater emphasis on forward sales. How much are you going to forward? So how much are you going to use? Um, maybe the futures markets to try to offset some of that volatility. But I, I don't know that we're to a point where we can reduce the volatility that's out there. It's just so many variables that it's difficult to wring out every single one of them um, as the farmers making their plans for next next harvest. I 
I appreciate you jumping in the field that though. I, I know it's a complex question, but I wanted, I wanted to get your take uh, real quick. You know, we got like 10 minutes left. I, I wanted to hit you with a question here on the tail end that I meant to hit you with on the, on the beginning is uh, individual commodities. Do you see what, what are you seeing as far as where you see strengths and weaknesses in, in our production? You know, are, are there certain, there's certain crops that are doing particularly well right now versus ones that are struggling. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting things happen in the oil crops, you know, markets. So when I look at, you know, the uh, opportunities there for soybean producers or sunflowers or, you know, you know, canola, you, you name it, it kind of depends on where you can grow this stuff. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities there for downstream product development. So uh, palm oil, right. We don't grow a lot of palm oil in this country. It doesn't grow in our, um, climates too well, but you're kind of seeing a, a cap on what those palm oil producers can do. And people are going to need the oil that comes off of those crops, the vegetable oils, canola oils, all that kind of stuff. So I, I look, I look out and I say, Hey, there's some really interesting stuff in the oil crops that we can fill backfill some demand globally. Uh, we've got, you know, a renewable diesel kind of hanging out, right? Like as a, as a new demand function, even corn oil, we think about uh, the sustainable aviation fuels, so, you know, I think there's just some really interesting stuff overlapping with some of our grain markets. And that's probably coming at a good time because we've got, you know, ethanol maybe starting to peak. We've kind of maybe hit peak ethanol um, in the U.S. as more and more cars convert to alternative fuels, EVs being, you know, I think the every time a Tesla sold like 40 bushels of corn, you know, go out of uh, out of use. Um, so, so really? you know, is, that, is that an actual statistic? I, I, I can't, I did the calculation once. I, th I think it was somewhere in that, that range though. Yeah. Yeah. Check, check me on my math, uh, for, for <laughs> your listeners out there who are, um, uh, ethanol nerds. Uh, but you know, there is a relationship. The minute you take a car that's used to come, you know, will consume X gallons of gasoline over its life. If you no longer have that car on the road, it's, you're just not going to need as much ethanol. So there's plenty of other things we can do with the corn. There's plenty of other things we can do with the ethanol even. So I don't, I don't think there's any concern about a collapse in corn demand at this point, but it's a change in demand. And I think there's a, still a great deal of opportunity for the byproduct. We used to think about, oh, you, cr you crush corn to make feed, right? And that's what you do with it. Well, the oil's actually got quite a bit of value. <laughs> Maybe someday the oil has as much or more value as the meal that you get to feed the animals. So I like that. I think, you know, cattle are doing spectacular. If you're raising cows, if you're making beef, it's a little tough sledding, but if you're, you know, making cows to feed through um, to the, the beef supply chain, things are pretty good. You needed it. It's been a tough year, tough three years uh, for, for, for cow calf country. But I think, you know, cattle's uh, seen prices they haven't seen for a long time. They're able to rebuild those herds, you know, re, rebuild some of those balance sheets. So, you know, I think cattle's doing pretty good outside of the processors who are getting squeezed on both ends. It costs more to make the beef and they're, they're paying less at the grocery store for the beef. He's a consumer. I'm okay. Well, I like to see maybe a little bit of relief from some of those uh, grocery store bills. I think I was spending, I don't know, I don't know about you, but got a family of four and we were spending, you know, three, 400 bucks on groceries used to spending 150, 400 is a lot. Yeah, I, I just stopped feeding my family and took out another mortgage <laughs> on another house. That's I ended, one way to do I ended it. up coming out in the positive on that. <laughs> um, you know, but I, there's always this is how agriculture is, right? So you're going to have these yeah. periods where this industry is doing pretty well for supply demand per reasons, which kind of hurts this other industry, and then uh, maybe it flip flops, and you've got um, you know look, look at hogs, right? They were 
doing spectacularly well you know, a couple of years ago, sending a lot of pork to China, cheap feed. And then you kind of flip-flop where you've got demand from China waning as they've rebuilt their pork industries and the cost of feed skyrocket. So now you've got this, oh, what was good two years ago is now not quite as good. I think there's just always that cyclical, this one's up this year, this one's a little bit down this year, and it kind of balances out over a three to five year life cycle. It's one of the things that, you know, Farmer Mac, we got a diversified portfolio. We talk about this a lot. Like that's why you have a diversified portfolio. If you're a landholder, it might be you go north to south to avoid storms, right? You don't want storms to hit. If you go east to west, I can take out all of all your crop in one bad hailstorm. If you go north to south, you've got that diversification. So I think um, fortunately for, for our food production as a country, what goes up comes back down and vice versa. It can be a tough couple of years, but there's usually a swing the other direction. And then for lenders, having that diversity really benefits, um, you know, maybe one sector is a little bit down, but you don't have to foreclose on it because you've got another sector that's kind of keeping that balance intact. So you can let the other industries start to come back up and you can ride that cycle a little bit easier with that diversification. Right. Well, I want again. I want to. I always try to stay respectful of your time, Jackson. I really appreciate your insights here. I, it always. It, it's great talking to you again. Uh, I want to give you a chance here at the end. I know that you and your team do a really wonderful job providing information, providing content out there. Uh, I know that you have you have a newsletter, and then do you do you guys run a uh, podcast internally as well? Yeah, we got we got what we call the feed. Thank you for giving me a chance to get one. I want, I want you to throw the plug down. Get it, yeah, get it no, it's. That's great. That's I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's called the feed. That's our sort of uh, economic. Uh, we do we cover ag and rural economies. Everything I talked about today, we kind of try to cover, uh, and we do it seasonally. And we're we're working towards an even better uh, output here, where we can do it almost real time, so we can kind of keep this content going. We used to do it, well, batch a bunch of articles up, put it out every quarter, and now we're moving towards a. Uh, and this is an exciting development uh, over on our shop. We're moving towards that more real time content delivery mechanism, uh, better, stronger, faster, all that kind of fun stuff. Multi-content. So you mentioned a podcast, we'll look for you know, videos, audios, all that kind of fun stuff. And we cover a wide swath of what uh, we think ag lenders, rural lenders, and rural Americans, all Americans, uh, for that matter, enjoy as it relates to the food, energy, uh, infrastructure that you know keep food moving through this country. So y'all are joining the 24-hour news cycle then, huh? Well, I like to I like to say it's uh, we we're not we're not we're not quite CNN, you know. We're not going to break stories or anything, but it was certainly a once a week or every other week, as opposed to four times a year for us, feels like a much fresher and faster take on uh, what's happening in the in the world. That's terrific. I look forward to seeing that uh, and and keep us updated so we can get that information out there as well from our from our angle. Um, Jackson, as always, appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Mac. You have a great day. You too. All right, cheers. This concludes episode number 64 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing current land real estate market trends and the future of land technology with former Mac Chief Economist and Head of Strategy, Research and Analytics, Jackson Takish. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.